0: Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 32, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood.
2: And me, Ravi Abbott.
0: And here we are, episode number 32. We've been doing the show eight months now. That's insane. We're we're dedicated, aren't we, Dan? (laughs) You know, every every Friday. Four months, it'll be an entire year that we've done the Retro Hour. So, guys, we really appreciate you tuning into the show every single week. We are still loving doing the show as well. And uh,
2: judging by the iTunes reviews this week, you're still loving listening to it as well. Yeah, yeah, we've had a... About five or six new ones, so if you can keep adding to them, it'd be great because uh, you've always got some kind words to say on iTunes. And it all helps in the grand scheme of things, obviously. Totally.
0: <laughs> now, maybe you've just found us on iTunes recently. Uh, the show comes out every Friday. Ravi and I run through the big stories that have been making the headlines in the world of retro, and then, in the second half of the show, we hand over to a very special guest. Now, I think it's fair to say the guest that we've got on this week has probably dealt with some of the biggest names in the world of
2: media. Totally. This guy, um, David Fox, he founded LucasArts Games, which is basically the gaming division Mm -hmm. for George Lucas. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, this is massive, all the old, old games, Zap McCracken, Mm -hmm. you remember that? Labyrinth Game as well he worked on, didn't he? Yeah, the Scum Engine.
0: Well, this guy was in there, I mean, you know, he was one of the founders of the... um, of of Lucasfilm Games. He was there pretty much from day one, really, wasn't he, when it started? And uh, we've got some amazing stories coming up. Him playing video games with George Lucas, who it turns out was actually a bit of an avid game designer, actually. He was pretty good at it.
2: Yeah, and uh, so so was Spielberg as well. (laughs) Now, you've got to hang around because we're
0: going to hear the story about Spielberg's special custom hack for the Star Wars arcade
2: game. Oh, yeah. And of course, it's going to be Star Wars themed. Yeah, absolutely. So he's
0: going to be on The Retro Hour in around half an hour from now. Uh, Just before we get into the stories this week as well, if you haven't liked our Facebook page, I think we are up to nearly 700 fans on there now.
2: Yeah, yeah. We should be getting more, though. We get more listens than that. Absolutely. So So if you haven't liked us on Facebook yet, links are on the
0: website, theretrohour.com, or just search for The Retro Hour Podcast. We post loads of stuff in there during the week, loads of nice memories.
2: Yeah, there was that good one about zip drives. I'd I'd totally (laughs) forgotten about zip drives, and actually... I think I've got one at work in the basement somewhere. And this image you posted up just reminded me of it.
0: what they have, like, a, was it 100 megabytes per disc or something?
2: Oh, it used to be 30 meg. Was it? Not or, even uh, 100. Yeah, on. yeah.
0: <laughs> but maybe you'd always get the click of death on them as well.
2: Oh, I don't long. remember that, no. Oh, they were very unreliable. Still look very cool, though. I only had one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, if you'd like to join us on Facebook and reminisce about such nerdiness as uh, Zip Drives, then the your hour podcast, give us a search and like the page. Right then, into this week's stories, and we're going to start with a bit of drama.
2: Yeah, this is uh, hopefully not going to be Coleco Part 2, but um, we've got another Kickstarter that's um, running into a bit of a uh, controversy. Another
0: crowd gone wrong, you could say. Now, uh, this is the Sinclair ZX Spectrum Vega Plus. Now, we mentioned this when it originally got announced back in, like, must have been January, February, months ago. And they actually raised a lot. It was on Indiegogo they did this, and they raised £417,000 towards this
2: project, which I think was about three times more than they initially wanted. It was everywhere, wasn't it? And because it was... Backed by Clive Sinclair as well, which, you know, in all the papers, I, I literally couldn't see any other news articles apart from <laughs> Vega Plus, Vega Plus.
0: Because there was like three like of these kind of Spectrum clones that came out at the same time, pretty much. And this was the only one that got the official Clive Sinclair endorsement, wasn't it?
2: Yeah. However. And, and the Vega before had been successful as well. So this is a follow-on from a successful project. Things
0: have gone a bit wrong, though, in the last... Uh, a couple of days, by the looks of things. Now there was a couple of guys who were involved in this: two former directors, Paul Andrews and Chris Smith. Now, from what we can tell, I mean, this story is literally just broken about what ten minutes before we started recording yeah, and tonight. We're,
2: we're recording this on Wednesday, so the landscape could be totally different by Friday.
0: <laughs> now, so what's essentially happened, from what we can gather, is they've accused the company. Which are the
2: two directors.
0: Yeah. uh, They're saying that this uh, company, Retro Games Limited, had not been answering um, crowdfunders' inquiries as to, you know, kind of uh, details on the product and when it's going to come out and specification and that kind of thing. And they're basically accusing them of not having good communication and they said that they can't work with that and now they're publicly distancing themselves from this project. So apparently they quit back in, like, April, but still held some shares in the company, I believe. Yeah, they still
2: hold a 50% share, so, you know. Which is interesting in itself.
0: And now the company are saying, in fact, this is not the case at all. And the reason they're going is to uh, set up a rival company.
2: Oh, God, this, this <laughs> just has the uh, kind of, uh, you know, beginnings of a, of a disaster. And I really hope it doesn't because the Vega Plus look really nice. And when's it meant to be out, Dan, isn't it? Well, it's meant to be out next month. Next month, so, okay, so.
0: It was meant to be out in September and I think it was like going to sell for 100 quid. So obviously, I mean, you think if they're going to be releasing these in like four weeks, they must be going into production about now.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what he was saying. His Well, these directors were saying, you know, uh, we won't get the right information about product status mm-hmm. and stuff, but um, we never know what's going on behind the scenes to so. answer. You know what, though? It, it all just seems a bit tacky. You know, and the publicly thrown muck at each yeah, other. Yeah, like... yeah. You're washing your dirty clothes in public. It's not good. Yeah, not
0: good at all, is it? And I think, you know, we, we've said before that the retro gaming industry really does rely on, like, crowdfunding these days. And, you know, it, it's just sad when stuff like this happens because I think it puts people off.
2: Yeah, get behind these
0: projects but I mean like I said the story literally has just broken tonight
2: so anything can change (laughs) yeah exactly so we'll keep an eye on that one guys we absolutely
0: will if you put money in then you know fingers crossed it all works out for you now this is pretty cool because I think Pretty much everyone I know has got a Raspberry Pi or two looking around in a drawer. Um, half of them unused.
2: People buy them and think, oh, what am I going to do with it? Well, well, I'd buy it, upgrade to the next model. and You know, I've got all the old ones there still. Yeah, so. I've got about four now, I think, yeah. looking around. Um, but if
0: you want to do a emulation on it, now there's been something really cool that's come out this week. And you've been trying this. It's called Ambien?
2: Ambient, yeah. This is a, a build that you can get, and it's basically... Um, like, you know, a Linux build, like Debian or, you know, Ambien, the Amiga version of that. And uh, it's actually running on a Raspberry Pi 3. It's the equivalent of, say, an Amiga 4000 with an 040. Oh, nice. Or or maybe an 060 if you push it a bit. But this is a seamless layer of emulation. So because it's Linux, um, I don't know if you remember, there was a program called K-Lite Years ago, that came out with Amiga OS XL. This is some really geeky stuff, guys. That you probably won't realize, <laughs> but um, that allowed you to boot into the Amiga operating system natively, without any kind of Windows background stuff and text. And this does exactly that.
0: So you put this on an SD card, image it, put it into your Raspberry Pi, and then it boots as if it's an Amiga straight as into if it's the Amiga. An Amiga.
2: Straight into an emulated environment, and you know you can do all your Amiga stuff, providing you've got all the right setup and roms and stuff like that
0: i mean you can buy the roms from uh cloanto they do the um the set you know off the android play store you're gonna fly like three or four pounds not very much yeah it's the uh amiga forever essentials isn't it? Yeah. yeah so i mean this is awesome because i don't i've got original amiga machines as i know you have as well but i think something like this a Raspberry Pi, is so small if you want to take it around a friend's house and play games and that kind of thing and having a machine that boots straight into it it kind of takes you out the experience a bit seeing like you know uh a Ubuntu loading screen or having a Windows yeah.
2: desktop and having to click it. But also, you know, Raspberry Pi is designed to be left on forever. So if I left my 4000 on, I'd have no house because it would just burn down <laughs> within a week or a few days. So. A crusty
0: old power supply. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> but, but a Raspberry Pi you can just leave there doing all your rendering or whatever.
0: Well, I'm going to um, get this set up and hopefully I'm going to try and get a video made this week about it because I haven't done a video for a couple of weeks. Oh, but. yeah,
2: let's see if it, if it turns into a headache or not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, from what you've said, though, it's a pretty seamless environment. I mean, it's only, it is very early days. It's only just come out, hasn't it, in the last week or so? Yeah,
2: yeah. So but, um, um, this is a really cool idea. And I'm sure there was A. Ross Broadway and there was a few a few attempts at Raspberry Pi ones, but this one's really got it right.
0: And I think the Aeros one, you had to be like a registered user or something to get it, but anyone can download this and it's free. So we'll pop our links in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, obviously, everyone's been going wild about this um, mini NES that Nintendo announced. that's coming out a bit later on this year. Now, one guy's actually made his his own version of it that a lot of people are saying is even better than the real thing. And again, it's based on the Raspberry Pi.
2: Yeah, I've seen a lot of articles where people are basically going... This is what Nintendo should be doing, not this new system. This guy's beat them, you know. Well,
0: looking at it, I mean, it is essentially Raspberry Pi in a Mini NES case with a controller. And I think the only real difference is that obviously, you know, you can load your own emulator onto it, so rather than, you know, the the Mini NES that's coming out that Nintendo are releasing, what, there's like 60 games on that? Yeah. And that's it. They're not going to add any more to it, and they can't. But with this, I mean, with it just being basically
2: an emulation box... You can put as many as you want on. Well, it could be a retro. You could put RetroPie on there. <laughs> it can have you can know, emulate more you know, than yeah. the Nintendo if you want
0: to. But um, it's got a 3D printed case, which I think you know he's done a really good job on the case. Oh yeah, definitely. It does look awesome. But I think kind of the gimmick that everyone's going wild about, which I'm not overly struck by if I'm honest, is the fact that it uses mini cartridges that are also 3D printed.
2: They're using NFC, aren't they? So it's a uh, it's like when you swipe your phone on the um, pin chip and pin thing. It just kind of registers it. It's it's, it's not really um, an actual game information stored on there, is it?
0: No, from what I've read, you know, literally it's these NFC cards. You put it in and there's an NFC reader on the GPIO port on the Pi. So it'll just tell the emulator to load this ROM. Off off that little card, yeah. No, it'll lo- load it off the actual SD card that's in the Raspberry <laughs> oh, okay. Pi. This just tells so, it what to load. Yeah. When you put the card in, it's like, <laughs> okay. oh, right, load that ROM. So there's nothing on the actual cards
2: themselves. And apparently they cost $6, $6 to make. Six dollars to make, oh God! So how 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 much would it cost to actually mass produce <laughs> and so, You know, if if
0: but oh, someone pointed out. this out on Reddit today, they put you know you could buy the game off the uh, Wii Virtual Store for like you know half the price. <laughs> like you know what I mean? Yeah, bit of a gimmick, and you know I think fair play to the guy. You know for a little homebrew project, it's uh it's pretty cool. But you know I, I can't see that it's anything Nintendo got to fear.
2: No, and um, I don't know what the hardware is going to be like behind the Nintendo one, so it could actually be do a nicer job of creating the NES games than a Raspberry Pi emulator.
0: Well, you mentioned that. I was, I was actually reading an article today, and they were talking about um, one of the marketing people from Nintendo Canada hmm. had done an interview on the radio over there. Um, I think it was yesterday. And she spoke a bit more about the details of the new Nintendo NES. And she's saying apparently it comes with like some um, kind of CRT emulation. Oh, like scan
2: lines. <laughs> yeah, and it kind
0: of smooths the pixels out and stuff when you use it via HDMI to give it a more
2: authentic look apparently, which... Is good news. Yeah, so, totally. Right. Um, let's hope that it's much better than this. <laughs> Raspberry <laughs> Pi one.
0: For, I think, you know, fair play to the guy for doing a little homebrew project. But yeah, I don't know why everyone's going wild over it. All the papers yeah, and stuff news sites. <laughs> yeah. like, come on. Now, this is kind of cool. You know, there are companies that ruled the world at one time. And then, where are they now?
2: Yeah, there's there's a lot. And the internet was initially a big kind of Flash pan for that. It was the um the destroyer of companies. The dot com boom, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, there is an article here on
0: um, NPR, and it's titled "The Big Brands of the '90s: The Big Internet Brands of the '90s. Where Are They Now?" I'd actually forgotten the Verizon had bought so many of these kind of old names. Obviously, they bought um, the buying Yahoo at the moment for four point eight billion. Wow, which sounds a lot for Yahoo. <laughs> Like, what do, you, what do Yahoo own these? They've got Tumblr and Flickr. And what else?
2: That's, <laughs> that's it, yeah. Yahoo uh, Mail. Geocities.
0: <laughs> I, I don't think know. they have to do own that, actually, yeah, yeah. But I can't imagine it's worth $4.8 And they bought um, AOL as well last year. So it seems Verizon are on a bit of a mission to kind of pick up all of these, you know, ancient giants.
2: Mm. But also it mentions a few of these other companies. Now, any interesting ones that you've seen on this list? Angel Fire, Angel Fire. I've not heard that name for years, and it says they're still around.
0: They were make your own website like GeoCities. Yeah, City's yeah. I yeah, had yeah. my
2: own little domain on Angel Fire. Mm-hmm. Everyone used to have their own little HTML site, and they'd put GIFs in there and code it <laughs> under
0: construction. It. GIFs. yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> well, some other ones as well. ICQ,
0: um, that apparently was sold for one hundred and eighty-eight million in twenty ten.
2: What? (laughs) This is madness. I wish I'd made a, like, crap piece of software back then. This is crazy. And Netscape... There you go. (laughs) And Netscape, of course, Netscape did their revenge, which was um, with the big Microsoft court case. Yeah. uh, Where they got accused of doing a monopoly Mm-hmm. Um, by packaging Internet Explorer with the operating system. They destroyed Netscape, but Netscape came back with the Mozilla Foundation. And it open-source and, and everything. Open-source yeah. and destroyed Internet Explorer. Now it's Microsoft Edge, isn't it? <laughs> so. And did
0: you know what Mozilla stands for? No, not at all. Would well, do you remember an old web browser called Mosaic? Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. It stands for Mosaic Killer. Ah, I never wow. knew that Yeah, I'd so, read that the other day I was like,
0: oh, that's interesting
2: The only reason I know about Mosaic was because that's what Kevin Mitnick would do all this naughty stuff
0: <laughs> But um, it is cool though to kind of look back and there's so many of these brands as well that you look at like, you know, Ask Jeeves and stuff like that you think, God, I remember like my mum used to use that because Alta Vista was a bit too complicated
2: <laughs> I, I, I was a dedicated Alta Vista guy I used to love Alta Vista it was awesome Do you um, remember the crack version? to la vista yeah, to get the cereals off and yeah. stuff. I, I
0: do remember that. I well, might even still be around. But Probably. I remember you'd have to go on that and like close all the pop-ups and stuff and yeah. bring up and everything, wouldn't you? Yeah. So, Yeah, it is cool to have a little look back. Because I mean, you think you know, these, these were only like a decade or 15 years ago, but it seems like such ancient
2: history now, doesn't it? And you know, it's the war with the search engines. It's kind of like the one that gets used the most is going to win, basically, because it has more results. So.
0: It's crazy, though, back then, you know, how quickly it would all change, because Yahoo was obviously the big player originally, then yeah. AltaVista came along, and there was a few kind of battled it out in the early 2000s before Google really took over, I well, think.
2: Well, there was that argument with AltaVista that AltaVista was the real search engine because it did the m- meter results. Yeah. And Google and Yahoo were curated search engines. Yeah, their own they, index. Where they indexed it and they picked it, and it wasn't a true search. Well, I
0: remember this one called All the Web
2: dot com i used to like that one and that that said you know
0: not just some of the web all of the web (laughs) and they're like a spider it was got a web spider that will call out and look at stuff do do you
2: remember the real-time searches that they used to do on they don't do that anymore the real-time twitter searches you could do on early google and stuff like that oh when twitter first came around yeah Yeah. yeah. that was really
0: good i I do remember that the last real rival that i remember hearing about was remember cool c-u-i-l In about 2008, 2009, was a group of ex-Google employees went to form this new company. And I remember, like, Leo Laporte was going crazy about them this week in tech. They're going to be the next big thing. And, like, (laughs) actually, I I do remember at the time, a lot of people thought that they were going to topple Google around, maybe 2007. Maybe looking at about, you know, nine, ten years ago now. But um, it had, like, a black background. And it was quite, you know, it looked quite modern with graphics, Not in the background. You could change it, but... I was thinking about it recently and I looked at the um
2: the domain it was actually for sale so I thought mm, yeah, mm. No one's well look at well that. bing <laughs> as well um it's quite popular in America isn't it but it doesn't seem to be around these parts. the only people i know
0: that um go on bing is to look at um rude videos <laughs> <laughs> I've heard they're pretty good for that but uh, not only that pe- i
2: know obviously no yeah. no only people i know is uh when they open Internet Explorer and its default as their search. (laughs) And then they search the word Google.
0: (laughs) (laughs) To search for Google Chrome and download it quickly, yeah. So if you want to have a little bit of reminiscing about these old Internet brands, you'll uh, find this article. We'll stick it in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Archive.org are a great website, and we've um, had a little article here submitted by Graeme Lacey. Uh, Thank you for getting in touch. Now this is Archive.org have added over 10,365 Amiga titles to its ever-growing list of software. Wow. You know, we mentioned that you can play some of their games in a browser. Yeah. Um, apparently, you can play um, 1,351 of these um, available right now. Some of them are just demos as well because they're trying to get around copyright and stuff as well. Um, but you look through it. I mean, they've got the Amiga Tosec on there, haven't they, already? Which yeah. is like, and they've got one for the Atari ST. Loads of systems as well where you can literally just download a massive zip file. I think the Atari ST, when I looked at that, it's something like um, 80 or 90 gigabytes or something of, like, you know, just
2: disk images. It's crazy because it's just like I never thought in my life I could download a complete collection of a game system. I never thought anyone would even make one, you know. Don't you, you look back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, download an MP3,
0: took you 20 minutes, yep. let alone downloading like nearly 100 gigabytes of files.
2: And the funny thing about this is as well, because of course they're all not legitimate copies, they're all pirate copies, every version's cracked.
0: <laughs> well, the thing about Archive.org, I mean, well, the Tosec project, they aim to do, you know, if you ever look at it and you want to play like a, a bit of software or a game on there, they have about 20 different versions of all the different cracked rows and yeah, everything, yeah. don't they? So it really is an effort to preserve this software. And at the moment, though, you can play over a 1,000 of these Amiga games, apparently, in an emulation layer called JS MAME,
2: um, which means you can actually just play it on your web browser. So I guess that's through Java.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, JS JavaScript, I guess, yeah. Well, uh, you know, the one fear that we all have as retro owners is that favorite website that you go on every week is just going to go down one day and never return with all that software that's essential to you. So this is great, mm -hmm. you know. And also, a bit of advice: have your own personal little backup archive as well. Oh, That's what I do.
0: If, like, you know, if if Aminet or something vanish one day, you'd be like, where do I get everything from now? You know what I mean? Yeah,
2: it's, uh, I, I know a guy who's got a mirror going on at the moment. So <laughs> I mean, the day
0: it's only like eighty gigabytes, apparently. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I could stick that on a USB drive. Yeah, he's so got like, it on it. his
2: hard drive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: crazy though, isn't it? But um, I, I think archive.org is such a great project, though, and it's it's a website that you know these guys are not only they started archiving the web. Now they seem to be trying to archive like every bit of computer software ever made. So it's a pretty beastly project, isn't it? Now they're bringing the internet to rural America in quite an interesting and uh, quite retro way.
2: Yeah, so I've been reading this article in the New York Times and it starts off really nicely. Um, From the sofa in his living room, Clinton Creason (laughs) can see the electric pole outside that his father staked there 70 years ago to bring power to the remote area (laughs) you should do movie trailers yeah so basically you know they're they're doing co-ops and electric co-ops which is the way that they originally bought electricity to the rural areas of america people in the kind of town or the village would say right we all want to get this electricity so let's (laughs) newfangled yeah let's put a load of money together and actually pay for the telecom lines to be installed and the the lines to be put in
0: this community have got together and decided, look, we all want fast internet. And I know this quite here. The cooperative is doing it again, but now, this time, the light bulb is the internet. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Which is great, though, because there's 120 residents here who've um, actually paid an internet provider to sling fibre cable for miles yeah. to reach their little village. That's awesome, though, isn't it? And I think, you know, of course, America's such a massive country as well. Mm. And there's got to be, you wonder how much of the country has still got, I mean, he said this is a 70-year-old phone pole that was there.
2: Yeah, and it's there's going to be such remote rural areas, and you know there's no way that you're going to be able to get the net out of there. I don't know. Do you, how would you do it, Dan? Well, you know what? it's actually a bit depressing this because they've managed to get this to like you know the deepest,
0: darkest parts of like the desert or whatever. Yeah, and I've got a mate who's just moved outside Leicester. And, like literally, he can only get one megabyte. Oh, God. Yeah, the phone lines are that old. And he's looking at, like, satellite, internet and all sorts because he lives just slightly out in the countryside, only about, like, three miles
2: away, though. The the worst thing is, right, this is the... I'd say I don't know what the difference with America is because I I was listening to Leo Laporte years ago Mm. and he was getting a T1 line installed and he was getting it all from the phone company and everything. But here, it's all about the junction box. So I lived in a modern building that was beautifully done up, but they put a copper box in there mm-hmm. i could only get one meg and that was in the city center i had Crytek underneath me developing the cry engine as well yeah. nobody took that, that game for ages to come out yeah. <laughs> it, it was crazy
0: it's well actually i had the same thing before i live where i did now i was in like a new estate that got built and it was exactly the same there i had i think my isp was bt i was weird i couldn't get like virgin or anything like that but i heard so a friend of mine who worked for Virgin at the time told me this. In the early, late 90s and early 2000s, um, the government kind of, you know, give a lot of money to... We're getting a bit off the topic of the America one here, but yeah. in, into Britain. Um, they kind of
2: funded... The rollout of cable, you know, the yeah, Yeah, there was companies. this uh, mass Get Everybody Connected program. Yeah, was, and that was yeah. like,
0: you know, Diamond were the early companies, I mean, even before NTL and that kind of yeah. thing. had Comcast, where I lived, Com- Comcast UK, that eventually was bought out by NTL. But then, I think the government stopped funding that around 2000, 2001, so then anything that was kind of built in the 10 years after that didn't get any, like, cable laid down.
2: Well, there's also these cheap little nasty companies. Not nasty, but the way that they're delivering internet isn't the best way, mm-hmm. which is like Plusnet, that basically use the old copper lines and advertise, we're using the old copper lines, but it's dirt cheap. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you, you can you can get internet, basic for your granny, and yeah. go online, but it's not helping the infrastructure at all develop.
0: Well, I think, you know, because I remember NTL, like, struggled for a long time and, like, they kept running out of money and everything, so they weren't putting any money into laying new, um, new cable, which is why mm. so many new estates are still on, like, this crap thing. But then you look at this and, you know, it's, I remember... I tried to get, you know, fibre in this place where I lived, and they kind of said to me, oh, if you get all your neighbours together and all that. But, you know, I met my neighbours maybe twice. I was not like, a little rural village where everyone's best buds and all that, so... Well,
2: maybe we could get a fibre cable and drag it to your mate's (laughs) house. uh,
0: (laughs) But I think good on this little community, though, you know, getting themselves connected to the world and uh, doing it together, so... Yeah, if the government's
2: not doing it, then sort it yourself. Exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right then, guys, thank you so much for checking out episode number 32 of the retro hour we will be out again next friday from our website the all your favorite podcast clients youtube as well and of course as we mentioned before give us a follow on facebook and uh, twitter we're on there as well
2: yeah yeah and just uh give us a
0: tweet and yeah everything <laughs> and also if you spot any stories in the week we always love getting stuff off you i shout out to colin who got in touch with a few stories this week as well yeah from let's play retro thank you very much for that colin right then for the next half an hour here he is then the main event The guy who was right there at the start. Lucasfilm Games we're going to talk about now. Labyrinth, Zach McCracken, The Scum Engine, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg. For the next half an hour on the Retro Hour, David Fox. And we'll catch you next Friday. Ciao. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you. So let's get your history right from the beginning. That would be interesting. And we'd love to find out what was your first experience with a computer
1: then? Ooh, well, first experience with a computer was when I was in high school, which was in the late 1960s. And I got permission to go to the local junior college and take a computer programming class. And we were at that class, they were using. I can't remember, it was either paper tape or punch cards. So it was not a very interactive experience. And I liked the idea of figuring stuff out, but I hated the the delay in feedback, where you write the program, you submit it to the operator, they come back and give you all the syntax errors the next day, (laughs) you fix the errors, hopefully, resubmit it, then you start getting logic errors. And, you know, why, why is it not working? And you have to go back and look at the code. And it was basically a one or two day turnaround each time there was an iteration. And that was just hoacious. I hated that.
0: <laughs> it sounds but, quite a long um, process.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I said, okay, this is not for me. I'm not going to be an engineer. I'm not going to do programming. And I switched to, um, psychology and it wasn't really until, um, maybe seven or eight years later, it was, um, in 1976, when my wife and I decided to, that we wanted to open a nonprofit public access microcomputer center, because microcomputers had just started coming out, then we got computers. Then we, we got funding to do the center. We opened it up with ten microcomputers, and those were way more fun to use because they had a CRT on them and a keyboard, and they were all local, and you know, programming was much more fun.
2: Were you initially really excited then using computers and wanted to get more people to access them?
1: Yeah, well, I think we saw I mean, I, the, the truth was I was looking around that time around 1976 I was looking long term about what I really wanted to be doing, and I was actually thinking of something way beyond what you could do at present time, and it was more like equivalent to um, an immersive interactive theme park <laughs> Yeah, it was just a far cry from what the technology was at the time. But the idea of being able to go to a place like Disneyland, which you know, I grew up with. I lived in Los Angeles. That's where I grew up. But instead of having the same experience every time you went on the ride, it would be totally different and immersive and you'd feel like you were there. It's really, you know, at least some aspects of what virtual reality would be now, except, you know, probably beyond that. Um, there's a book series called um, Dream Park that came out in the early 80s, I think, that was really close to what I was imagining. But this is, you know, I was thinking about this earlier than that. So I figured, okay, if I, I don't know anything about computers, really, how to, if, I, if that's where I want to end up, what do I have to do to start? And we kind of broke it down and came up with this public access center where I could, you know, learn programming, teach programming to other kids. My wife was a teacher, so I taught her programming, and she t- did most of the classes. We'd have... Field trips of kids coming in from schools and for birthday parties, and they'd rent time on the computers for like a fifty an hour. And we had a bunch of games. It eventually ended up with like 40 or so computers, including Apple IIs and Atari 800s and 400s, Commodore Pet, Radio Shack computer, TRS 80, and a couple of CPM systems. And for most of the kids that came, this was their first experience. Ever seeing or touching a computer, they were just for most families. They were just too expensive or not really practical. I mean, basically at the time, if you wanted to do something on a computer, you either had to write a, write the program yourself, or see if you could find a game you liked. And there weren't a, there wasn't a huge amount of software available at the time.
0: So for you, was it was it more the entertainment side of computing then that interested you? Was it like digital games that you were most interested in?
1: Yeah, well, because that was you know that was the path towards a an interactive disneyland type experience would be in the area of gaming we actually thought that the center the computer center would be much more about business use when we were looking at which computers we were going to purchase initially um, even though my heart was with gaming I, I don't want to lock down where i thought the usage usage was going to be so when i was looking at the computers we saw one which was called a processor technology Sol 20 which was um, Baseline 8080 CPU and had a black and white monitor you plug into it. it. Had a really nice keyboard with upper and lower case text and walnut walnut wooden sides to it, which my wife really liked. <laughs> and um, the other one we looked at was the Apple II, which had just come out or was just about to come out. And I actually went down to you know the Sunnyvale area and got a demo of the early Apple II by these two guys with really scraggly long hair and beards and stuff and um, they were really proud of it but um, when I found out that there was no upper and lower case even though it was in color and it had sound I, I just thought it wasn't going to work for the business use, the people thought were going to come into the center, so that, that was the, the two Steve, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs giving me the demo, I had no idea who they were of course, and we chose not to go with the Apple II at that point until they, until later when they ended up with the ability to do upper and lower case.
0: What were they like when you met them then? At that time,
1: they were both really enthusiastic, and it was a sales pitch. I mean, it was the small office-like space with you know dozens and dozens of Apple II shelves and computers stacked on desks, and you know they were showing off their baby, and so it was. I, I was impressed. It just that, I just think, think that was, for our use, I thought it was a fatal error. I, I was wrong. I mean, I, if we had gone with that, it probably would have been a better choice because we spent so much time. I mean, it had BASIC built into it. Um, we spent so much time having to load BASIC off of cassette tapes into our Sol 20s. And if someone would walk up to one of them and give it a little shock, a static like electricity shock, it would blow the memory out, and it would have to start over again. And the fact that most of the usage turned out to be gaming instead of um, what I thought would be business stuff, that, was, that would have been a lot easier, too. So that was a mistake. Cost-wise, they're probably in the ballpark. They're probably somewhat equivalent, especially if you got gotten a bunch. So it was one regret from way back.
2: Did you eventually kind of uh, – well, did you believe that everyone would have a computer in their own home? Yeah. by oh, yeah. What was that beyond short? Yeah.
1: Your... We were – Way over optimistic. We figured that in five years everyone would have a computer. And, you know, it, it was, it probably took, you know, 10 or 15 or 20. It took longer. I think by the time I stopped, we, we did that. We did the center for about four or five years. It went on beyond after we left. I think it went for another three or four years where the students who were helping run it took it over for us. By the time we left, everyone, all the field trips that came in, everyone had already touched a computer. Um, most still didn't have one in their house, but schools were at least getting them, so there was a- there was access.
2: Well, um, you were in a great position because you managed to get a job with uh, Lucasfilms and Atari, which were both probably the biggest entertainment companies in the world. Um... Yeah,
1: well, I never actually worked for Atari. Um, <laughs> I, I was we, Because of the computer center, we were kind of tied into them. We, we got some grants and... Atari donated a bunch of computers to us. Um, Chris Crawford, who was an evangelist at the time for Atari, would come out and give some talks at, a, at computer club meetings we had and got access to information about the workings of, of the computer, which, which is how I ended up, you know, that, that happened when I was working on my computer animation book that I did in the early 80s. Because the book had two aspects, one was you know looking at high-end computer animation. I got access to the computer division at Lucasfilm and got to meet the people there and interview them and you know show, they show me the demos of the things they were working on at the time. And I was able to include a bunch of photos and and actually animation in the book. One of the heads of the group, Alvy Ray Smith ended up proofreading my book for, for me offered to do that to make sure it's technically accurate for at least the computer high-end computer stuff and so, the second half of the book was really a tutorial on how to use the Atari 800 to do computer animation at, at a low level and so I had access to a lot of information in the workings of the Atari chips and talking to the Atari people and all that and at around the same time that I finished the book is when I heard through one of our computer center members who happened to work at Industrial Light and Magic that Lucasone was going to start a games group. And I was able to, because of the contacts I made while I was working on the book, um, I was able to call up um, Ed Catmull, who is the head of the computer division, and say, I heard about this. I would love to interview for that. And um, I ended up, I think we had just hired Peter Langston, who was going to be the head of, of the group. But he hadn't started yet. So as soon as he came in to start, I was like one of the first people he interviewed and was the really the first person he hired other than a guy named Rob Poor, who was already a member of the computer division and wanted to switch over to our group instead of what he was doing. So I got in right at the beginning.
0: Well, you know, those early days of um, Lucasfilm games, what kind of involvement did George Lucas have at all, if any?
1: Um, Not very much. He he knew that he wanted to have people working on games because he knew that at some point the difference between games and movies would kind of end up being next to nothing. I mean, the quality of the animation, the color, he knew that the graphics and the imagery and everything would would reach such a high level that it would be hard to tell the difference. But in terms of day-to-day operation, it was pretty much hands-off. When we started, they were still in production on Return of the Jedi, and that's where all his, his attention really was. And when the first two games were ready to be shown, which my game was Rescue on Fractalus and Dave Levine's game was Ballblazer, um, George came in for a demo while we were you know, pretty early maybe out for a beta in terms of where we were, where we were with the games. And spent about 20 minutes or so with each of us and you know, gave him the joystick. He played the game, and he gave me some really good feedback. I mean, there are a couple of things I choices I had made which were naive in terms of, of game design, which he kind of pointed out to me. And you know, it was asking why I was making these choices. And um, one was to not include a fire button because I wanted to avoid shooting. I and mean, this is my pacifistic tendencies coming out. I just wanted to force you to have the um, the enemy crash into walls by having them follow closely behind you, which was just not really practical. So he, he asked for a fire button, and he also had the great idea of of creating a tension point where the aliens, um, the pilots who you're picking up every once in a while would, become an, would be an alien instead of the pilot, and they'd have this moment where one of them pops up and starts smashing on the glass. And I don't think he had exactly what, what what it would look like, but his idea of, creating tension and, and uh, doubt and, and everything in the game was was probably what made it really memorable for most people. I mean, I still get people who write to me and tell me the first time that they had one of the jaggy monsters popping up and the reaction to that.
0: I think it's great um, that he, he had a bit of a natural flair for game design then, even though he didn't have much involvement in it before.
1: Well, he had a, 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 desi- a natural flair for storytelling. Mm-hmm. And... That's where he was looking in for movies. So he was just saying, "Okay, knowing that you need tension and you need something where where you want the emotional involvement in some way." That was where he pushed it. And then over the years, he he really you know he come in towards the end of the the process. He might have taken a look at a few games, but he really didn't have any input at the time when we first started the group. And for most of the time I was there, we were not allowed to do anything in the Star Wars universe and. That was because all the, you know, the licenses for different platforms had already been secured by different companies. So we really couldn't compete against them internally. So it really, wasn't until the early '90s when some of those licenses expired that, you know, Lucas was able to start doing Star Wars games. And at the time, I was pretty disappointed because the, the main reason I got there, I went there, was because I was I wanted to be. I wanted to find a way to get inside of the Star Wars universe, maybe by making a game or by being involved in some way. And when I found out that I, that, that was you know, off-limits, I was kind of like, what? Are you kidding? The um, first game I did kind of had a, a Star Wars-inspired feel to it, but it really wasn't in that universe. Um, but then after a few years of coming up with her own stuff, I realized how freeing that was by not having George... You know, carefully looking at what we were doing with his baby, basically.
2: Um, you got Labyrinth as a uh, a film tie-in, and uh, mm-hmm. went to England to meet Douglas Adams.
1: Um, well, the Lucas Lucasfilm was the you know the, the the movie was produced by Lucasfilm, came out under the Lucasfilm title. So that was really the first time they were saying, "Hey, do you want to do a game based on this license or this this product that we're doing?" I think they wanted to kind of test us to see how well we were able to take a movie and adapt it to the game, to a game world. And, you know, we thought it would sound like a really good idea. Um, so we, when we heard that we could do a brainstorming session in England, it was like a week-long you know, series of meetings with Douglas Adams, and a guy named Christopher Surf, who was heavily involved with the Muppets and, and Jim Henson, who I was really Jim Hanson was the director of the movie. So wow, this is awesome. Let's do that. So we um, a group of us, I think it was like four of us, went there and, and spent a week. And I was a game designer and project leader on the pro- on that. And so I was mostly just taking notes and contributing ideas, but I felt so outclassed <laughs> by by Douglas. Adams and his quick wit and humor, and and I i don't remember if I talked a lot. I was like kind of an awe for at least a few days.
0: A bit starstruck,
1: uh, for sure. By that point, I had already read at least one of the—I'm not sure what the where they were, but I—I I knew his work. I read *Hitchhiker's Guide*, and I was definitely starstruck. It's ironic, since you know, I could I could be in a room and talk to George Lucas, but I couldn't be in a room and talk to Douglas Adams. So, and he was—you know—he was so nice and, and welcoming and everything. It, it, it wasn't anything in, in his attitude. It was just my, my tongue-tiedness. Because
0: at the time, loads of games just used, like, you know, a simple text parser, didn't they, for um, adventure games. And Labyrinth, I think, in my memory, that was one of the first ones I saw where he actually, you know, all adventure games turned out to be like that in the end, but when he selected actions rather than just typing it in, was, was that something you wanted to stay away from, just making it purely text-based?
1: I think it was partly a timing in terms of production schedule. Um, we felt that in order to do a really good text parser, it would just take way too long to do it. I mean, Sierra had already been doing text adventure games with graphic imagery for a while, and to get it to really work well, it just seemed like it was going to be beyond us. So we had the idea of like limiting it, and I think it was my idea to come up with a kind of this what we, I was calling a slot machine interface where you had almost like wheels or strips of verbs and objects that you could choose from so it would feel it would be limited but it wouldn't be too, too restrictive and you know it worked i think it worked um even in the text adventure part of this we did that same thing so we had combinations of text words so it was kind of like a tutorial or training to, to get to the next stage yeah when ron did maniac mansion soon after labyrinth i think by that point we'd already you know, seeing that restricting it, you know, keeping away from a parser was a good idea. You didn't have a lot of people t- trying to metagame it by guessing what the programmer had been thinking, what words he was thinking of. And you could be much more focused on the game itself and not, you know, which words to use.
0: Well, obviously, that used the scum system, and that, that kind of became the thing of legends. I mean, um, how did the development on that work then? Did did that kind of was it a natural evolution after Labyrinth?
1: Yeah, I, well, Brian didn't work on Labyrinth, but and I don't, I'm not even sure how we were just talking about this recently. Um, I'm not even sure to what degree he looked at Labyrinth and, and came up with its inspiration. He said when he would start, when he and Gary started working on Maniac Mansion, he didn't even know at the time that he wanted wanted it to be an adventure game at first and then you know, it kind of struck him after he saw some CR games and said, okay, this is the format I want to use. and um, So it might have been some influence from Labyrinth, and, and I think mostly it was probably Ron off on his own with Gary coming up with what he thought would work the best. Um, originally, it wasn't going to be a scum system. He was going to hand code everything, which is what we do with Labyrinth. And at some point, um, I believe Chip Morningstar, who was working on Habitat at the time, suggested that he use... You know, an, uh, an interpreter and, and, you know, P-Code, I think is was, was what he was using. So basically some way where where you had a leverage to do a lot more, you do something at a higher level than just hand coding it all. And that probably was what made it possible because doing Labyrinth was really, really painful. Where doing the scum scripting was really fun. You know, it's much more like giving directions to the actors on the stage.
0: Well, Scum, I mean, it was, it was kind of used until, like, the mid-'90s, wasn't it, at, at LucasArts? Did you ever envision that it was going to last that long?
1: No, and we, I mean, we didn't even think that our games would last that long. We, we figured, at the time, doing a game would have a life of maybe one or two years, maybe three if we were lucky. And by that point, everyone would have given up those computers and gotten a much better computer, and they wouldn't want to go back and play. You know, they couldn't, I mean, take figure fit technically, they wouldn't even be able to do it, you know because you can't play a Commodore sixty four game on an Amiga, for example, and we figured that was going to be the trend. you know more and more powerful computers would come out that would not be compatible with previous ones. And we just totally missed the idea of emulators as a possibility that, of course, if they're getting more powerful, then they could literally emulate a much slower computer. And have way you know, imbuements faster than the old computers were i think i wasn't because i kind of wasn't really involved in gaming from around 93 or four. 94, 94 to about maybe for about the next 10 years when i went to either when i went to when in that 2004 i went to both the gathering and assembly one was in one was in norway the other was in in finland and that was my first time that I was blown away that people actually knew the games that we had done. They were still playing them, and they're playing them on everything from the current computers to their Nokia, tele- you know, cell phones, you know, Commodore 64 emulator on a Nokia phone. It, it blew me away because I, 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 yeah, I had no, I had no connection with this. I had no idea people were still going to even remember the games.
0: Well, after Maniac Mansion, obviously, um, the next game to use Scum was. Um... Zap McCracken. So where did the idea of that game come from? Because
1: that was quite an interesting concept for a game. Yeah, well, Maniac Matcha was Ron and Gary's idea, and I was working with them as the primary scum scripter. Once, since I already spent a good chunk of time learning the system, it felt like a natural next step to do my own game next on using scum. And I really wanted to do something that had kind of a new-agey, bizarre, otherworldly quality to it and spent a week, no, actually, maybe it was two days, brainstorming with a friend of our general manager's. Uh, Steve Arnold was our general manager. He had a friend named David Spangler, who was a spiritualist and wrote books about that whole area. And we just talked about all the different elements we could try to squeeze into the game. And we were definitely doing it from a funny point of view. It was definitely tongue-in-cheek. I'd go back, very similar to Labyrinth, I'd go back... Home afterwards and look at you know pages and pages of notes and f- figure out how can I turn this into a cohesive story and a lot of that from the brainstorming worked its way in kind of got got massaged a lot. Um, then there was there was a meeting we had with all the designers at Lucasfilm where we talked about how to make it funnier. And Ron Ron felt that it was wasn't going to be funny enough the way it was, so we kind of turned it a little bit further in a bizarre direction. Was it originally
0: um, so, quite a serious game then, was it originally?
1: No, it wasn't at all serious. So It just wasn't as wacky. Mm-hmm. Um, it was intended to be kind of more of a dry humor originally. Um, I mean, the whole concept, everything was kind of off kilter, but the, you know, taking the main character who's originally was named Jason, giving him a, a kind of a new, more unusual name, um, which we put out of the Marin County phone book, and turning him in from a mainstream reporter from like a major newspaper to a tabloid totally opened it up in terms of what we could do and and how how nuts it was and once we had realized that that we said okay here's the frame this is a perfect framework the tabloid reporting part just kind of freed everything up and, and put it into a, a much wackier world.
0: I've even heard some people kind of, uh, you know, say maybe inspired the X-Files and Zach McCracken's a bit like Fox Mulder. Were were you kind of into like um, UFOs and that kind of thing, conspiracy theories?
1: Um, I don't know about conspiracy theories that much, but definitely UFOs and, you know, psychic phenomenon and, you know, pretty much everything that was there. Everything that – I mean, I loved the X-Files when it came out because it was like very much like the game – um, we'd also for years afterwards we'd find you know people would bring me stories from real tabloid newspapers that were you know directly out of the game. <laughs> you know like you know, so oh my God, you know this is just like we had in the game. I when we did some stuff like you know we, we were looking for conspiracy stuff like you know the whole thing with the face on Mars that was you know David Spangler knew about that. I didn't know about that. so we threw some of that in there we we're looking for things that everything we could think of that people have been talking about like, you know, Elvis and, um, Elvis in space and all the other things, ancient, ancient astronauts and all that. Right. Yeah. I guess, I guess I was into that. I, I don't know if I call it conspiracy stuff. It's like, you know, kind of far out stuff that, that most people wouldn't consider.
2: One thing I uh, particularly remember about LucasArts games was, um, piracy was completely rife in Europe and none of my friends would have a copy disc of LucasArts because they always had really good copy protection.
1: Mm. Uh, yeah well, that's good. I mean the first two games we did got pirated before they were were even published. So and we were really sensitive to that,
2: yeah, because you must have um there was there was a lot of innovation in the kind of anti-piracy technology. I remember code wheels uh, from mm-hmm. Monkey Island and stuff like that. I think that was one of the first times I'd seen a code wheel
1: right. yeah you know, we we I think for each of our games that we self-published, we had something in there which was supposed to be anti-piracy. I mean, it didn't, it didn't stop it. It just probably punished the people who were buying the game because they had to then stop and look up something on a code sheet or code wheel and and it's probably kind of a pain. I mean, there's a whole sequence I put into into Zach McCracken where if you couldn't answer the the questions that were presented to you and where you didn't need the code sheet, it threw you into pirate jail and there's a whole You've seen with, with being in jail and then talking to you about not stealing software. It's kind of fun. You can find that on the internet, on YouTube, if you look for it.
0: It's got the a bit of a sense of humor about it, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we knew that was going to happen anyway. We just kind of wanted people to do it. I don't know if you noticed on Ron's game, the one I'm working on now with Ron on Fibbleweed Park, he had a whole bit where you know, you could pay $5 extra for the game for, you know, guilt absolution for pirating, pirating our earlier games and you know, make you feel better about it. <laughs>
2: like so a lot, people,
1: a lot of people did that. A lot of people paid the extra $5 to, to feel like they were absolved of, of any guilt for having pirated the other games.
0: Well, earlier on, we did touch on, um, you mentioned Sierra. Um, obviously, they were kind of the, the other big name in adventure games at the time. How much of a rival were they seen internally at Lucasfilm?
1: Um, for, from our point of view, they were pretty huge rival. I think from their point of view, they probably barely knew we were around. In the United States, we'd issue a title and it would sell maybe a fraction of what theirs did in the U.S. In Europe, we I think we were doing much better than they did. I don't think they had very good distribution in, in Europe. So it's interesting. Most of I think most of our fans are from from Europe. I mean, all the there are a bunch of fan based, fan created Zach McCracken sequels and prequels, and they all came from Germany. I think it was because we, you know, we wanted our games there. We also did a really careful job of translating them to to the, the local languages. And whenever they would come out with a new game, we would look at it and make sure we were on track to be competitive. I remember we we were working on Lucas on um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and saw a CR game and how much animation they were using that we had not been using any animation much animation yet so we had to rethink a whole bunch of things and create a whole an- new animation system to kind of match the level of of you know animated cutscenes that they were using
0: well speaking of our uh, next big projects um Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was obviously a massive title uh, so what was what was it like working on that game then
1: as with labyrinth we had a hard deadline because we really wanted the game to come out near near the re, near the time the film was released, but we only had about six months, and so Noah Falstein had already started working on the game and realized that it wasn't going to get finished with him just being on it by himself, even with you know some programming help. So um, Steve Arnold asked both me and Ron Gilbert if we could join with Noah in a really high-intensity project, get something done. So we decided to use Scum because it was already there, and you could do graphic adventure, and it was a push. It wasn't as horrendous as you might think. We actually had a lot of fun doing it. I remember you know being able to split up the, the work and each take different sections, and it felt like a really fun project. We had early scripts. We, we knew what the story was going to be, so we just had to come up with a way to match the feeling of the story but we also didn't want having we don't want people who had seen the movie to have a big advantage over people who hadn't we probably assumed that everyone who played the game would have already seen the movie by then but we wanted to be parallel enough so that you were you could see where the inspiration came from but it wasn't solving you know things from the movie weren't going to solve the game for you um and we had an early meeting with george lucas and Steven Spielberg. Um, where we just asked for any guidelines they had about what we could and could not do like you know was it okay if we actually killed indie off in one of the in the game is if that were what happened and they said yeah sure you could do that and we could expand the locations and you know we could go you know go as far outside the stories we wanted to um so that was nice to have that freedom although we didn't go too far away from what was in the in the in the movie.
0: I was going to ask whether there was much kind of crossover with the, the movie production. Was, was Spielberg involved much more beyond that point then?
1: Not really. I think we, he ended up playing the game before it came out. And he was calling Noah on the phone like every day asking for hints. <laughs> <laughs> About you know what what should I do with this? I mean, here's where I am. I'm sick at this point, so going
0: to sell them a guidebook.
1: <laughs> yeah, really. Well, we don't think we had the guidebook out yet. Um, Noah Noah was his guidebook. You know, when you have a direct line to one of the designers, it's a lot faster. Um, you know, Stephen was actually much more of a gamer than George was. So he he was very much into a bunch of our games, and he spent time you know actually playing them. And well kind of a funny story. Um, much earlier because. There was the, you know, Atari Coin op had the license for the Atari Coin op games for Star Wars. And we would get a complete, you know, game system every time they finished one. So we had kind of a room that was set aside for arcade games. And one of the games was a sit down, I think the first Star Wars game that came out, which was the the one with the vector color vector graphics of, you know, going through the the Death Star and Fighting Tide Fighters and all that. And Peter Langston had looked over the manual that came with it, you know, the, so really the repair manual, and found that there was a, um, a jumper he could add, which would put the, put the game into marketing mode, which was really a way to single step through the frames so the marketing people could take screenshots. And he took a, a pair, a couple wires from that. From the circuit board, brought it into the console in the sit-down console area, and put a button on it, calling labeled it the Force. <laughs> so when you <laughs> push the when you push the Force button, the the whole thing would go in, you know all, all the action would freeze except for the joystick cursor, um, which you could then carefully go through and, and pick off all the Tie Fighters on the screen without worrying about them advancing on you. Genius. And you push, and you push it again, and it would go back into normal mode. And we kind of forgot about that, and then, and then, um and we would just do it because it was fun, and we, and we felt it was a cheat, but it was kind of fun to do it that way. And they're I think they were doing the, the production work on, maybe it was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I think it was that film. They were doing a bunch of work in the soundstage, you know, that was adjacent to where we were working. And Steven Spielberg asked if there were any arcade games that they could put over there, you know, that he could play while they were down. Because, you know, in movies, there's a huge amount of time when they're doing setup for the next shot, and it's you know, probably really boring. So he wanted something to do while they were doing the setup. So we sent that game over and heard the story of like, you know, like half a year later, I guess he really liked the game a lot. So he ordered one for his home or for his office back in Los Angeles, you know, we heard that there was a phone call to Atari when it arrived where he was saying, you yeah, know, I got the game, but hey, what? where's the force button? And they said, what? What are you talking about? I said, yeah, you're missing the force button.
0: Should have come to standard with everyone.
1: <laughs> I know, really. It could have been a great marketing thing. And so, maybe pay, put an extra quarter in to get access to it or something.
2: So um, why did you end up leaving in the end?
1: Um, well, when I first started there, I told... First, I told Peter Langston, then when Steve Arnold came over as the general manager, I told him that what I really wanted to be doing was the Disneyland stuff, you know, the interactive theme park or the much more, the term by that point was, became location-based entertainment. And, you know, that doing games for homes was okay, but I really wanted to do something that was much more immersive. And, you know, I was told, yeah, well, that's all well and good, but um, right now we're doing home games around 1990 you know Steve Arnold was also really interested in the idea of doing something like like location based entertainment and we were growing pretty fast and needed to be much more of a you know I think I think at that point we had like maybe 60 or 70 people in the in the group it was going to expand to like 100 and something and it was pretty much everyone was reporting to Steve Arnold um, we didn't have separate groups set up. So he asked me to, you know, for a year to stop doing games and become the director of operations and try to create more of a um, flatter hierarchical type of uh, um, reporting structure where, yeah, you know, like maybe we have a head of the art department, head of quality assurance, head of, uh, you know, customer support. And I, one of my jobs was to find people for those positions and also to, kind of be the, the, the people who, the person who was managing all the programmers and designers. And just so it, was, it wasn't all on him. I did that, I, I didn't especially like that because it wasn't creative in the same way that doing games is creative. Um, and he knew that that wasn't my, what I wanted to do. So he kind of made a deal with me that said, if you do that for a year, then get someone to replace you, we can start a new group to do some kind of location-based entertainment project. So that's pretty much what happened. I did it for a year, and then um, we started a new group called Rebel Arts and Technology, which was really outside of LucasArts, that was focused on doing more immersive types of experiences, and the first one, the big one we were working on was called the Mirage, and it was a joint venture with Hughes Simulation. That's Hughes Aircraft. um, It's a company that was building flight simulators that the airlines and the and the military were using, so they knew they knew a lot about simulators, but they didn't know anything about games. So they were going to do the technical aspects of it, and we were going to do the design and the creative part of it. And that was you know blast. So we ended up building a prototype. Um, we're supposed to be multiplayer. You're going to have eight of these pods that could play together in the same universe. And I actually got to create a Star Wars game. We have permission to do that, and. You're flying um, a Tie Fighter or an X-wing and having flying around this planet. Um, I got to work with Orson Scott Card, uh, the author, who had been doing some consulting with us by that point, and he helped me with some of the story aspects of, of the concepts I was coming up with. Yeah, it was it was a blast to play it, and you know, it's had a really lot of, lot of fun, you know, doing that project. And then, unfortunately, um, Steve Arnold who was the big champion for that, left to go work for Bill Gates and start up a new group for him. And there really wasn't anyone high enough up at, at Lucasfilm who cared about the project. And so they ended up backing away from it, closing down our group, and you know basically selling or giving the rights to Hughes to do what they wanted to with it. At that point, I just left, because I, I couldn't imagine going back and doing games when I had a taste of something fully immersive, you know, we you imagine sitting in a cockpit with with a hundred twenty degree field view, scene of what you're flying through, and high end high end, you know, simulator graphics, you know, something way better than you could do with computers at the time. Just you know, just such a cool experience.
2: Uh, well, we know you're working at the moment on a Thimbleweed Park with uh, right. Ron Gilbert. Um, did mm-hmm. you manage to play any of the uh, Monkey Island games?
1: Well, the, I played. I played. Um, I think Monkey Island. The first Monkey Island game was in production while I was the director of operations, so I probably have a credit on that one as director of operations. Um, the second one, I think I might have been doing the Mirage project at that point, but I did play it and really liked it a lot. The ones after that, I played a little bit, but it was it didn't I didn't, didn't it didn't grab me in the same way. So yeah, Monkey Island was probably one of my favorite games, and the idea of working with Ron and Gary again was just like, you know, I, was, I wasn't was sure at first whether we could just fall in and, and just do it. And whether, you know, 25 years later, would that be too much to actually try doing this again? And, you know, happily, it worked out really well. It felt really natural. Like, after a couple minutes of just brainstorming, it was like, oh yeah, I remember this. This is why this is the best part of, of being at Lucas was working with creative people like this and coming up with it with really fun ideas. So we're Still deep in production, and you know, the target is to have it out by beginning of 2017, and hopefully we'll be on target. We're going to be at um, PAX West in early September, which is in Seattle, and I'm going to go there myself. I'll be there while I'm with Ron. I'm not sure if Gary's going, and it's really fun. It's a really fun game.
0: If people want to find it's... out a bit more about it, is there any they can go to? Uh...
1: Yeah, go to thimbleweedpark.com. There's a um, website there. There's also a blog that that Ron keeps up. Um, there's usually a new post at least once or twice a week. We do a podcast every couple weeks. Um, Ron, Gary, and I, where we talk about where we are at production, and and it's a, because it was a Kickstarter-based, you know, funded game. There's a you know large following of people who who are involved in interact with us on the message boards or on the on the discussions after the blog and you know it's it's really fun to you know there's something that i never had as an experience while we were doing our games at, back at lucas where we actually have contact with the people with our audience i mean even after the games came out i'd barely hear anything from anyone and here it's like constant feedback and interaction both on the blog and social media and um that's really fun
0: Without giving away, obviously, any spoilers, um, will there be a bit of that, you know, lots of that Lucas Magic in there?
1: Oh, yeah. It's it's 100% Lucas Magic, except it's updated and, you know, takes into consideration everything that we've learned in the last 25 years about games. And so I think hopefully it'll be even more fun.
0: Well, David, there's not many guys we've had on the show where, you know, probably half of our top 10 favorite games of all time, they'd be behind. So uh, we (laughs) really appreciate you coming on this week and taking the time to talk to us.
1: Good. Well, maybe after... Thimbleweed is is out we should you should get all this on the show or something
2: oh absolutely we'd love that yeah that would be amazing uh, maybe we could get you and Ron on and do a, a yeah freeway <laughs> like podcasting
1: yeah that'd be great
0: excellent well thank you so much David really enjoyed that okay,
1: okay thank you